Don't you appreciate our creative team and our, I mean, all these guys that just work so hard. You know, I was just thinking, next year, I want to just take the bumper, sermon bumpers from this series, the five bumpers and create a kid's video and a children's book. Wouldn't that be great to do? So we'll try to do that next year. Um, I was thinking, speaking of sermons, we were, we were watching the, the little thing there where you could like order all the sermon series for last year. I was just standing here thinking, you know, they say that right before you die, your life flashes before your eyes. I'm thinking before I die, it's like all these sermon series are going to like pass before my eyes. I think I've done like 120 in the last 10 years. So, you know, that way it could, I could just see my whole life pass before me. Yesterday, though, before the 4 o'clock service, I was kind of thinking about, and this is a useless exercise, I guess, but I was just sort of thinking about, I wonder how many messages I've brought through the years. And as near as I could calculate, I've done over 5,000 sermons. And I would hope that I've been a good craftsman. I hope that I've brought value to people's lives with that. But I started thinking about the different kinds of sermons that I would bring. And to be honest with you, most messages that I would bring are sort of tele- uh, microscopic in nature. In the sense that they tend to focus on one particular aspect of following Jesus. And we sort of drill down into that aspect and we talk about it for 25 or 30 minutes. And we get sort of a microscopic look at some concept. But on a rare occasion, we'll almost back away and take a telescopic view of following Jesus. And in that kind of message, although we don't get in depth into anything, we get sort of a summary, a summary message of what it means to follow Jesus. And the value in that, of course, is that it does give us a comprehensive picture in a pretty short period of time. Today's talk is exactly that. We're not going to drill down into anything all that big or specific But we are going to get a look at what it means to follow Jesus, as I said, in a comprehensive fashion. And herein is where the value comes for each of us. Because we're in various places. Some of us have been Christ followers for a long time. And when you hear these things, they're going to check the boxes for you. And you're going to say, yeah, that is what it means to follow Jesus. And you're going to reflect back on some of these transitions that happened in your life. And you're going to celebrate those. I've always dreamed of a church, though in which a third of the people who come are longtime Christ followers, a third of the people will have just begun to follow Jesus, and a third of the people have yet to discover him. And I, 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 we've gotten very close to that, and I'm excited about the fact that there are some of you here today who have just started to follow Jesus. And you're not really sure what's involved in that. It's just that you've made a decision in your life that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And the cool thing for you is you're going to kind of find yourself where you are in this journey, and you're going to be able to look ahead at the steps that are to come. So it's going to be cool for that. The group that excites me the most are those of you who would be here today and you say, Mark, I'm not sure what I believe. I'm not even sure I believe in God. I'm not sure I believe in Jesus, but I'm open and I'm a seeker and I'm exploring. I think this talk is going to have special value for you because what it's going to provide for you is a real vision of what it means to follow Jesus instead of a skewed vision that we can get sometimes in traditional religion. What we're going to be talking about today is what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. We're going to be talking about the visit of the Magi, sometimes they're called the wise men, who came to the place where Jesus was. And we've already talked about the debate that happens. It's pointless really anyway. But the debate that happens within some theological circles, did the wise men come to the stable and visit Jesus when he was the baby in the manger? Or did they visit Jesus later in a house? Me, I think it's just like the nativity scene. I think they came to the stable. And I argued why I think that's the case. But again, it doesn't really matter all that much. Well, the big part of this story, and I've never really been sure that I've known how to tell you this in the last four weeks. I've tried 
um, I just want you to understand what an anomaly it was, what an aberration for life it was that these guys came to the manger or came to where the baby Jesus was. I've never been able to find the words in English to describe to you how big this is. And my concern is, for all of us who grew up in America, we grew up in traditional Christianity, we sort of bake in the concept of the Magi's visit to baby Jesus. I mean, you may be like us. In our house, we have this nativity scene. We've got the baby in the manger, got Mary and Joseph, got the cattle, got the shepherds, got a little drummer boy. And then there are these guys in regalia that are there holding their treasure chest. We sort of bake them in like, yeah, that's part of the narrative. But my concern has been throughout this entire series that we might not understand just what a peculiar thing it was. The Magi, as we described in week one, the Magi were the intelligentsia of the world. They were the brilliant thinkers. They were the world's think tank. For a thousand years, these were the elite scholars. And as we've said, cultures changed and powers shifted and new New powers conquered old powers, and when those new powers conquered old powers, frequently they would be very brutal with the leaders of the previous regime, but the, the, the magi were untouchable. They were the scholars. They were the ones who had the brain power. And these were the individuals who left their world on their own nickel, and they traveled a minimum of 600 miles and a maximum probably of 1,000 miles halfway across the known world, as I said, on their own nickel, to arrive before a baby of a peasant couple and not just to congratulate them, but to fall on their faces before this baby and worship him as king of kings and lord of lords. And as we've said throughout this series, that begs some serious questions. Why were the, why were the world's most brilliant? We don't know whether three or 300. We don't know. We think they're three. We say they're three because there were three gifts, but I don't know. Were they all men? Were they women? I don't know. They were just the world's smartest people. And they traveled all that distance, and they didn't fly Delta. They didn't, they didn't drive their Lexuses over. I mean, they, they had to come by foot or camel. And it was a difficult journey. Scholars told us they would have had to cross both the Tigris and the Euphrates River. They would have had to go across the desert. They would have had to dealt with bands of marauders. But they went through all of that in order to get to the place where they would fall before a peasant baby and worship him as king of kings and lord of lords as the one who would remake the world. What I would like to do today is I would like to look back on that whole experience. And I would like to look for us to look at their journey not in a literal sense, but in an existential sense. I want to talk to us about their spiritual journey to God. And as I said, if you're a longtime follower of Christ, you will check the boxes and say, yeah, this is wonderful. This is what's happened in my life. If you're somewhere along the journey, you'll know where you are and you'll know what is yet to come. And if you've never even started the journey, at least you can walk out of here and say, at least I think I understand what it means when people follow Jesus. So with that in mind, let's take this telescopic look and let's look at five or six concepts. And here's the first one. We'll start with the most obvious and perhaps it will be simplistic, but at least it's a good starting point. Okay, here's the first concept I want to leave with you. Before they knew Jesus, they followed the star. Real quickly, this caveat. Star here doesn't mean what it means to us. It just means there was some phenomenon in the sky that probably was fairly close to the ground. When it moved, they could tell it was light. But before they knew Jesus, I mean, as we'll see, there will be a moment when they know Jesus. But before they knew Jesus, they followed the star. Now, here's what's cool to me. They had many more questions than they had answers. They had mostly questions. Now, they did have some things. They had three things going for them. Number one, they had a hunger. 
Because see, here's the thing, and this is what I know, and I discover this all the time at New Spring. No matter how high you rise, and no, no matter how many accolades you gain, no matter how much money you make, no matter how successful you are in the eyes of the world, until you have God in your life, there's a hunger. Blaise Pascal, who was the 17th century mathematician, the, the genius, his gift to the world, Blaise Pascal made a comment, and the corruption of it or the, the evolution of that comment comes down to us sort of like this. And that is that in each human being, there is a God-shaped hole that is a vacuum until God fills that hole. This is not exactly what Pascal said, but it's pretty close. And I think he was right. You know, Pascal said that, that, that emptiness, there's a trace of what humans were once like before sin. And he said that part, that emptiness of us craves God. So when you think about why these magi I left Babylon after having been influenced by the glitz of Babylon and the, the business acumen of the Medes and Persians and the intellectualism and the philosophy of the Greeks and the muscle of the Romans, after having experienced all those cultures, they said like the old U2 song, still haven't found what we're looking for, and that's why they went halfway across the world on their own nickel to fall down and worship a peasant baby. They had a hunger inside of them. Number two, because Daniel had been there years before, 500 years before, for, as a matter of fact, they had a piece of the Bible. Now, the interesting thing about the Bible to them, um, it, it contained promises. And they were intrigued by the promises, but it was still a foreign book. How many of us, when you first begin to seek God, you felt the same way? Or you may feel that way today. It's like, I'm not really sure I believe the Bible. I don't know. What's it like? You know, every once in a while, someone will say to me, how do we know a group of guys didn't get together, set together in a room and write it? Okay, let me just answer that one for you. It was written over 1,600 years by 44 authors. They didn't sit in a room. They couldn't have sat in a room. They wouldn't have even known the room. These are individuals that didn't know each other for the most part. But having said that, somebody could say, how do you know? I'm not really sure what I know about the Bible. But if you're intrigued by it enough to say, well, I'm interested in it, well, that's where the wise men were. I mean, it was a foreign book to them. It wasn't their book. They weren't Jewish. But it intrigued them, and there was stuff in there that they couldn't, they couldn't refute. But here's the big one, okay? Because we said they had mostly questions. The questions were the blanks. They were empty, empty spots that they didn't have answers for. But even though they didn't have answers for all their questions, they were saying that they had three things. They had a hunger. Number two, they had a Bible. It was foreign to them, but it was intriguing. But here's the big one, and there's no getting away from this. They had light. See, in Numbers 24, 17, the, the old prophet had said that whenever the Messiah would be born, there would be a star associated with it. Daniel had left them a timetable in Daniel 9, 25 through 27. And so when they saw the star appear, they had a light to follow. Did they know Jesus' name? No. Did they know exactly where they were going to go? Clearly no. But they had light. And so do you. Whether you're in this worship service, or you're watching online around the world, or you're watching on television, you have light. Light is what God puts into your life to summon you to him. Now, light can be all kinds of things. I mean, it could be that you had a grandparent who was a person of faith that invested in you, and even though that grandparent is with God now, that glow is still there, and you're not sure you're a God follower yet, but you're like thinking about her uh, this time of year and the impact you had in her life, she had on your life, and you're wondering, what is it that made her different? And that's light that's pulling you toward God. Or it could be a friend that you know who loves God, and that friend um, talks to you, and even though you're not sure you believe what she believes, it's like, 
I'm interested. It's light. It's not God, but it's light that draws you to God. Still, it can, light can be all kinds of things. I mean, honestly, I think sometimes light can be a crisis in our lives that makes us, makes us face our world not in the order that we hoped it would be in, and we can begin to ask questions about who God is. Light comes in all sizes, shapes, and forms. It's just whatever it is in your life that summons you to God. And that's, the wise men had questions, a lot they didn't know, but they had those three things. They had a hunger, they had some promises in a book that was foreign to them, but intriguing. And then thirdly, there was a light, and they followed that light. That's the second thought that I want to give you. They acted on the light they had. See, here's the thing, one of the things that really makes me sad sometimes when I talk to people is I will hear people, and clearly there is light in their life. There's something going on in their life that's summoning them toward God or something that's fascinating to them. But instead of pursuing that, they back away, and they, they just sit still. And, and, and here's how, here's how they'll, they'll articulate it to me. They'll like say, okay, Mark, there are some things about God that interest me, but I have all these questions. And when God answers all my questions, then I'll be interested in him. That's a cop-out, as we used to say in the 70s. Basically, what that is saying is, I'm lazy, and I'm not going to seek, and if God ticks all my boxes and answers all my questions, then I'll be interested in him. And instead of seeking, really what they do is they just sit back in a hands-off approach and just say, well, if God answers all my questions, or if God somehow, if he meets my concept of what morality is and what justice is, then maybe I'll be interested in him, but until that time... You know, and this is something else too. In our culture today, sometimes people will tell me, well, Mark, you know what? I, I, I don't know if I believe in God, but I went, you know, in college, my professor t- says that the Bible says this, and this, you know, everybody laughed about it in the classroom. One of the things that gets to me is that people will reject God on some of the silliest stuff sometimes. Because what happens is, in an environment like that, somebody who really doesn't know much about the Bible will talk to people who know less about the Bible and will give them some skewed concept of something that's not anything that God says. And I'm sitting back hearing that thinking, I could debunk that in about 30 seconds. So my concern is this, is that there will be people that will get light, but they won't act on it. It's like, for some reason, they stop. Now, here's the deal. If there's light in your life, act on it. That's true whether you're somebody who hasn't yet begun to follow God or if you're a longtime Christian. God puts light into our lives not so that we'll be intrigued by it, but so that we will act on it. In the book of Isaiah 55, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Scripture says this. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he's near. What does it mean when God is near? God's in the same place all the time. Well, what that means is, in other words, when there's light in your life and God is summoning you toward him, the Bible says, seek him in the time frame when he can be found, which indicates there could be a time in our lives if we flip God off enough, God will just say, okay, I'm going to leave him alone. Because God says, seek him while he can be found and call upon him when the light is near. And then look at this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he that is God will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now, God is offering a couple of things that I desperately need because I'm a total screw-up. I'm not, I'm not a person that can claim any righteousness on his own, so I desperately need those two things. I need mercy from God, and I need free pardon. 
Because I've done so many things wrong in my life that I just can't afford to face God without his mercy and without his free pardon. Okay, so on what condition does God offer me mercy and free pardon? You, see, you saw the first verb, seek. Seek. In other words, if God puts light in our lives, it's our responsibility to act on that light. And that's what the wise men did. So many people will let questions about God Keep them from seeking. You know what's bizarre about that? Is that God allows us to have questions so that we will seek him. Let me do something for a few moments that I think is going to be immensely valuable. I want to talk about three responses to God that a lot of people think are the same thing, but there's infinite difference among the three. I want to talk to you about questions, doubts, and unbelief. Because a lot of people who are exploring God will think that those are equal, that they're synonyms. But I want to tell you there is heaven and hell difference among those three. Questions, doubts, and unbelief. Let me talk about questions for a moment. Here's the thing. If you grew up in a traditional church or you've tried to visit a traditional church, sometimes you can get rebuffed if you have questions. And it's like, don't bring your questions in here. We indoctrinate. Well, let me just let you know, if you have questions and you're here at New Spring, you're in a safe place because we're all about questions at New Spring. In fact, we have a ministry called Starting Point that like 3,000 people have gone through, and it's all about people sitting in a living room environment and bringing their questions and discussing those questions. We love questions. See, here's the thing about questions. True questions are always welcomed by God. And all God followers have questions. If you're a God follower, trust me, you're going to have questions the rest of your life. We think about Mary. She was such a special woman. And yet when the angel came to tell her she was going to have a baby as a virgin in Luke chapter 1, she asked, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. I mean, look at the Bible. The great women, the great men of the Bible, they all had questions. You will always have questions. So if you're here today and you've tried religion and they rebuffed you when you tried to ask questions, let me just tell you, that's the problem with religion. God is not that way. God welcomes true questions. He's all about questions. In fact, questions are what can bring you to him. I remember 13, 14 years ago, I was asked to speak at one of our local universities. It was a psychology class. And um, I got there a little early. The professor was still giving her lecture. And so I kind of quietly went in and made my way down the side of the classroom, walked to the back of the class, sat beside a couple of cool guys. I knew they were cool guys because they were in the back of the class by themselves acting like they didn't care. So I went back and sat by them. And uh, so I waited for her to finish her lecture. And then she said, well, I'm going to have, we're going to have like a 10-minute break. And then our guest speaker is uh, Pastor Mark Hoover, Pastor's New Spring Church. He's going to talk to us at that moment. Everybody in the class knew who I was and kind of looked at me like, um, but anyway, I went back and sat, I had, like I said, I sat by those two guys. And during the break, they didn't leave. They sat there with me. And so one of them said, so, you're a pastor. I said, yeah. So and he began to ask me questions. His friend began to ask me questions. It was very quick for me to discover that they were both at least agnostic, if not non-theists, because the questions they were asking me were, to put it very, you know, euphemistically, they were contrarian. In fact, if I had chosen to be, I could have been offended by the questions that they were asking me because they were asking me those kinds of questions that a lot of times non-theists will ask people who believe in God. But I just tried to answer their questions. If I didn't know the answer, I said, hey, I don't know the answer to that, but I tried my best to answer. So I gave, gave my talk, and at the end of my talk, right before I left, those two guys came up to me and they said, hey, where's your church? And I told them. They said, 
you know what? It was, we were getting close to Easter. They said, we just may come to your church. And one of them joked, said, yeah, the roof is going to fall in. But they said, we may come to your church. And they did. They came for Easter. And both kids in the service accepted Christ as their Savior. And, 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 they, and they kept coming. But one of them graduated. He had to go to grad school. And he, he, left me, he, he sent me a present, a cookbook. He, kid was, he loved cooking. So he sent me a cookbook for a present. And written inside the opening of the cookbook were these words, Dear Mark, thank you for the difference you've made in my life. He said, you were the first Christian who didn't reject my questions. You answered my questions and changed my life. That's one of the real problems I have with traditional, traditional religion that blows away questions. I mean, the thing of it is, we're all about questions here. We love questions. You'll always have questions. God doesn't. You say, well, Mark, I have all kinds of questions about God. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. What are there? There's a lot of things I don't understand about God. Questions are cool. Bring questions. Now let's talk about doubt for a few moments because this can be a difficult time of the year. And somebody could say, Mark, you know what? I'm going through a season of doubt right now. Does God hate me? I want to give you what I believe is a really good definition of doubt. Doubt is human frailty buckling under the greatness of God. See, here's the thing. God tells me these massive God-like statements that God loves me, that God cares about me, that God has got this enormous plan for my life, that when I pray, God answers my prayer, and that God is with me all the time. My problem, I'm human. I don't always feel like God is with me all the time. I don't always feel like he answers my prayers. So what can happen is God <clears throat> can tell me these big God truths, but I can crumble my human weakness buckles under the bigness of God. And you know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says that the Lord is like a dad to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. He knows how weak he are. He remembers that we are made of dust. If you're going through a season of doubt today and struggling, maybe you're going, as I said, this can be a hard time of the year especially for those of us who have emotional disorders, you can say, Mark, I'm just really wondering about God. Is he really there? Does he hate me because I have doubts? No. God invites your questions. He's patient with our doubts. But unbelief is a different thing. See, unbelief is deliberate rejection of the truth. Unbelief means I walk right up to the truth and I walk right up to God and I flip him off. Now, as I said, a lot of people think these are all three of the same things, but as you can understand now, they're so different. God's cool with questions. God understands he's sympathetic with our doubts, but God has no time for unbelief. If after we've experienced God, we can say, I'm just, it's not for me, then, then God says, okay, I guess I'll go away. Now, here's the thing I love about the wise men. As I said, they were filled with questions. They had a lot of blanks they didn't have filled in and a lot, of, a lot of things they didn't know the answer to. But they followed the light that they had. Maybe they had doubts along the way, but they didn't have unbelief. They never closed down. They were always open toward God. Okay? You know, that's the thing that God is inviting for you today. Whatever the light is that's in your life, God is saying, follow it. You know, he never asks more than that. For many of us, we have a lot of light. We grew up in the light. We grew up with church and parents that taught us the light. 
Others, I have a friend who's a non-theist. There hasn't been any faith in his family for generations. So there's like a faint glimmer. But remember this. All God ever asks from you is to follow the light that you have. He doesn't have the same standard for everybody. It's just like follow the light that you have. And here's the cool thing. Because I could be talking to somebody here today who says, Mark, I don't really know that I have a whole lot of light, but I'm like beginning to explore. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like aggressively pursuing. That's cool because here's the deal. For the person who will chase the light, for the person who will follow the light that they have, God will give them more light. If we tell God, I'm not really interested, I'm really busy right now. I mean, you know, like I'm in church here today, but I'm wondering like, are the Chiefs going to win? Yeah, they're going to win. They're going to be fine. Not sure about the Cowboys. But you're just like, here today, it's like, I'm, you know, I've got this going on. I've got Christmas shopping to this afternoon. I guess I'm just going to kind of veg the rest of the message. And God's like, okay, if you're not interested in my light, then I'll let it dim out. Let me tell you how Jesus said it in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Jesus said, pay close attention to what you hear. The closer you listen, the more understanding will be given, and you will receive even more. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. So even right now, not that I'm important, I'm just carrying a message, but like, as you're listening to this talk... You're either like, wow, that's interesting. I'd like to learn more about this. Or it's like, I don't really care about this. Well, then you're in the process of either getting more light or less light. When I, TMI, when I, when I first came to our church, I was 28 years old. It was going on 32 years ago. And I came during a trans, I came because of a transition process. The previous pastor was much older. He had been a professor of mine when I was in college. He came to this church in 1978. That was the year I graduated from college. And so beginning in about 1982, he began to talk to me about moving to Kansas and coming here and transitioning and ultimately becoming pastor here. And I wasn't interested in moving to Kansas for a while, but he just was very persistent. And uh, so anyway, when I came here, um, I came assisting him, and then we were co-pastors, and then he assisted me for a number of years. So it was just a great relationship. But the only problem I have when I came here, the church only had about 350. And I'm one of those people that I can't be still, and, and so I have to stay working all the time. And to be honest with you, the job that I had when I came here, it was something I could probably do in 20 hours. So I was trying to find all kinds of things I, that I could do that would keep me busy. And so this is the first week I was here. Our church was located in South Hillside at the time. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to like start walking the streets of the neighborhoods and talking to people, meeting people, and, and talking to them about God. So I went to this neighborhood. I think it was like off Hillside, south of Pawnee. And I was like knocking on doors or ringing doorbells and just saying, hi, I'm Mark Hoover. I'm from the church and up the street and just want to meet with you and visit with you and talk to you. I remember coming to this one house and Knocked on the door, rang the door, and a guy came to the door. He's about my age, like I am now, like a really old guy. And uh, at least he looked that way to me when I was 28. And so he invited me to come into his house. And so when I walked into his house, there was this coffee table that was different from anything I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, the top of it was like a sheet of like three-inch thick acrylic. And in this clear acrylic, there were rocks that had been cut in half. I mean, these would have been ugly rocks, but when they were cut in half, they had these magnificent formations. And these were like molded into the top of the coffee table. And so I was trying to be nice, and clearly it was something that stood out. So I said to him, this is really beautiful. And I said, he, sa he said, do you, do you like that? I, I, I said, yeah, it's really amazing. He said, no, no, do, do you really like it? 
And I said, I mean, only about a minute and a half. I said, yeah, I really like it. He said, no, no, no. I mean, do you really, really, really like it? I'm like, why did I ever come in this house? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I really, really, really like it. He said, well, come with me. And he took me down the hallway into his den, which is in the back of the house. And every piece of furniture in that room was done the same way. All the coffee tables, the end tables, their circular lampshades, they were all acrylic with rocks molded into them. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like a Smithsonian Institute exhibit. Now, here's the thing. God is a whole lot like that because he brings light into our life. And it's like, well, maybe it's a song you hear on the radio, a Christian song. Maybe it's a friend that talks to you about God at Starbucks Sunday. Or maybe you just like attend a service here or you're watching online. And it's like, wow, that's kind of intriguing. And God is like, you, really, you like that? Yeah. No, no. I, I mean, do you really, really like that? Do you like that enough to stop what you're doing for a while and put your iPhone down? Yeah. I mean, no, no, no. Do you, do, you, do you just like, you really, really care about this enough that it might change your life? Yeah, I really, really like it. And God is saying, okay, come back to the den. And that's when he begins to broaden the light. So that's what happened to the Magi. They had a lot of blanks. They had a lot of questions. They didn't know, but they followed the light that they had. And guess what? They, they arrived. You talk about getting light. They got there where baby Jesus was. They followed the light that they have. Okay, when God woke me up at 3.30 months ago to give me this series, this was one of the main thoughts that really blew my mind that day. The time came, the moment came when the star's job was finished. See, if these guys had been in traditional religion, they would have worshipped the star. Strange, isn't it? How that people in so-called Christianity will worship everything but Jesus. They will worship a church. They'll worship a denomination. They'll worship a pastor. They'll worship relics and icons. They'll worship ceremonies and symbols. They may even worship the Bible. All those things are light, and they're wonderful in their places. But God never set us up so that we would worship a church or a denomination. And Lord knows, not a pastor. What what God set us up to do is to follow all of that light until we come to Jesus. And at that point, all of us who provide light, we've done our job. Because when you meet Jesus, his light is so great that any pastor's light will dim out. His light is so great that any church or denomination or religious organization will dim out. God bless all who give light, but at the end of the day, it's all about one thing, that you meet Jesus. That's what matters. In Matthew 2, verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They didn't worship the star that got them there. They worshipped the baby they came to see. I love how the star is never mentioned again. You know, may we always be able to draw a distinction between the sources of light in our life and Jesus. My favorite Bible study is in John chapter 4. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Samaria is a wrong, it was a bad place. People did crazy stuff there. Most Jews avoided Samaria, but not Jesus. There was a woman who lived in a city there in Samaria called Sychar. And the, I mean, that was the town's name. We don't know her name. But we do know that she had been married five times and divorced five times, sleeping with a man who was not her husband. She was the kind of person everybody would walk by as a total loser in those days. 
And yet Jesus said, I got to go there. And the reason he wanted to go there was to meet her. You know the story, we call it the woman at the well. And Jesus met her and her life was changed. And she ran back into the city. This is a part of the story we don't sometimes get to. She ran back into the city and told all the men. It's interesting, she called the men out. And she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I'm guessing a lot of the men thought, I wonder if he used my name. And so the men of the city came out, and they saw Jesus. Now, I want you to hear what the men said to her after they met Jesus. The people said to the woman, first we believed in Jesus because of what you told us, but now we believe because we heard him ourselves, we know now that he really is the one who, is the, who will save the world. Basically, they were saying, you were the light that got us out here. You were the star that we followed, but now we've met him, and we don't need to talk about the star anymore. One of my favorite statements of this message is the fourth statement. They came on a promise, and they left with a relationship. Knowing New Spring, this is the one that means so much to me, because so many of you came following the light that you had, and you came on a promise, or you came on a statement, but now you have a relationship for yourself. In the book of John, the Bible says this about Jesus. He came to his own world, but his own nation did not welcome him. Yet some people accepted him and put their faith in him. So he gave them the right to become the children of God. The children. How many of you here, when you came, you don't like really know what you're getting into? They said there's this church over there, K96 and 21st, and it's really different. The pastor is like seriously crazy, but they have a great kids' ministry, and you know, you just, if you tried religion, you might try this church, and you came, and you didn't know what you're into, but you heard the message of Jesus, and you prayed and invited him into your life, and you know what? Now you have a relationship. You know Jesus. See, they came as seekers, but they left as family. The moment they knelt down and worshiped Jesus, they were changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Now, now that they're no longer following a light and they have a relationship, I want you to notice, this is really, really cool, the source of their direction changed. There was a time when they were following the rays from some sort of heavenly being. But what we're about to read now is on their way home, they're going to go back home on a completely different source of direction. Let me read this to you. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned, do you see those three words? Having, that's in English, it's three words in Greek, it's one word. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, Greek, in which the New Testament is written, is very hard sometimes to translate into English because there just aren't English equivalents. Those three words, having been warned, is a pathetic translation. All English translations are pathetic. And the reason for that is, is the Greek word is this big, long word called kramatisthenes. You can stump your friends at trivia if you want to use that. Kramatisthenes. And here's what Greeks would do. If there were like several concepts, they'd like jam them all together and make one big word out of it. Let me tell you literally what that word means. It means they asked God and God answered them. 
See what I mean? I mean, on the way, they just followed the light from a star. They didn't know where they were going. It wasn't real, it wasn't real definitive. It was just, there it was. And they were following the light that they have. But now they're no longer light followers. They've bowed down before Jesus. They're family now. They have a relationship. Consequently, they can just directly say, God, what are we supposed to do here? And God answered them. We know why. Herod was freaking out. He was going to kill all the boy babies under two. He started in Bethlehem. So God had to get them out of there before they wound up in danger. So they asked God what to do, and God told them. That's the cool thing about being in a relationship with God. When you came to him, you came with questions, and you still have a lot. But now you're not just depending upon a friend who invited you or a song or something your grandma told you when you were little. It's like now that you have a relationship with God and you week by week hear what God has to say, you're beginning to order, you're beginning to order your life on a different, sense of, different set of directions. This and I'm finished because the clock says I'm at 1 minute and 33 seconds overtime. They went home traveling a different path. Now, guys, one thing I try never to do is to get too deep into symbolism. I try to keep it in the short grass. If, you're, if you don't play golf, that means keep it in the fairway. I try to just tell you what the Bible has to say. But this is one time I want to vary because I think the symbolism here is really strong. The Bible tells us that God sent them home by a different route than which they came. They'll work with me for a moment. These are the smartest people in the world. They didn't know exactly where they were going, but they knew they were going to Israel. They have to leave Persia or wherever they are, Babylon, and they have to go to Israel. That they know. They're following the star. You can be sure that as brilliant as these people were, they would have taken the most convenient route. As I said earlier, they had a lot of obstacles. They had to cross big rivers. They had to deal with potential bandits. On top of that, they had to go across the desert. I know it wasn't easy, but you can be sure. They decided before they would go to Israel, they would take the most convenient route. The very concept of them traveling home a different route means, use the transitive principle, it means that they are going to travel a less convenient road. See, when we meet God, we meet him having traveled our own roads. The roads that we found most convenient. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each traveled our own road. In fact, that is the quintessential definition of sin. It means I do what I want to do. I travel my own road. But somewhere along traveling our own road, we see the star, and we begin to follow the star, and we get to Jesus. But after you meet Jesus, look at what we read. We read this verse earlier. Let me read it again. The Bible says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. New people travel new roads. That doesn't mean you're perfect. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. It just means after I meet Jesus, I don't think the way I used to think. I, I, things that didn't used to trouble me, trouble me. Things that used to be boring to me are now exciting to me. I am traveling a different road. See, here's the thing. If you came your own way to Jesus and now you're still going your own way after coming face to face with him, I don't want to scare anybody, but you have reason to question, did you really meet him? Because the Bible says if you meet Jesus, you're a new person. New people walk new routes. 
But let me just talk to somebody here today who has met Jesus and you begin to discover that following God is not the most convenient road because chances are it's fraught with some difficulties that you didn't expect or that you might say, I don't know why. You know, now that I'm following Jesus, I'm beginning to get pushback that I didn't get before. What should I think about that? At the risk of being personal. I never thought I was going to be a pastor. That wasn't what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an attorney, which is fine. It's a great profession. That's, I wanted to be a, a, an attorney. I wanted to go into broadcast journalism and then into politics. I always laugh about that because Lord knows at New Spring, I've had all the broadcasting I want. And I pastored a Baptist church for 20 years, so I've had all the politics I want. <laughs> but um, I, I didn't really want to be a pastor when God called me. I was from Texas. I thought I would always live in Texas. And here I am, and it's below zero this morning. <laughs> you know, I, I've got to hurry because I'm in overtime. Let me just tell you this. God's road for me was not the convenient road that I have mapped out for myself, but it has been so wonderful. Every day, basically, something happens where someone's life changes here at New Spring, and I'll get the message, and I'll turn to Mary Alice or to my executive pastor, Billy Bohr, I'll talk to somebody, and I'll say these words. I love my job. I love Kansas. I love Wichita. I love you guys. I cannot imagine being anyplace else. See, here's the thing. God comes along, and he says, you know what? If you're going to follow me, you're going to go a different route, and we're going to say, but it might not be convenient. And God is like, okay, but here's the deal. Here's the thing. If you will travel my road, I will go with you. And like the poet said, in the road less travel, that has made all the difference. When you begin to follow Jesus, you go a different route. But it's okay. Because someday you'll look in the rearview mirror and say, it was the best route. And what's best of all is, God went with me for the entire trip. This, guys, is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You start out with questions, but you follow the light that you have. And the more light you follow, the more light you get. And then when you begin to follow that light, you ultimately meet Jesus. And he changes you, and you become a different person. And because you're a different person, you begin to get a different source of direction. Now you have God speaking into your life through his word. And then you start traveling a different route. And then after you've traveled that route for a while, you look back and you say, God is so smart. And he's so wise. That is the story of the Magi and the story of my life and many of yours. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I'm not really sure I've experienced that junction point where I've really, like, engaged God. Well, you know what the really cool thing about that is is that it's not found the way most people think. It's not in joining some religious organization. It's not in giving money. It's not in trying to be a good person. It's an understanding that God loves you and Jesus lived the life that you can't live and he paid for all your sins. And simply asking him to be your Lord and Savior. Here's the thing. In Christmas, someone's going to hand you a gift. I mean, at our house, we're so busy at Christmas, we have to have Christmas today. And we will hand gifts to each other. When you get a gift, all you have to do is to reach out and take it. Not to buy it. You just reach out and accept it. The Bible says that Jesus is the gift of God. And if you want him in your life, you just like you would reach out and accept a present. You just reach out and accept Jesus. He's already done the heavy lifting. He carried the cross. You don't have to carry it. 
He just asks you to come to him by faith. If you're here today and you want to have that experience, let me do something. Let me lead you in a prayer. These are not magic words. These are just words to call out to God. And if I'll pray it slowly. You can decide if you want to own it and say these things to God. Would you bow your head with me, please? Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you forgive me and make me your child? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, you could say, Mark, I'm not sure what happened to me. Let me give you your first Christmas gift. If you prayed that prayer with me, we're in this auditorium this today, so all you need to do is go outside the auditorium to a place called Guest Services. Take your Talk to Us card and just check the box that you prayed to receive Christ. I have a gift for you, the same Bible I preach from and also a book I wrote that will help you answer a lot of your questions. Thank you guys so much for coming out in the cold this morning. We'll see you Christmas Eve. God bless.